welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We're continuing this um, kind of query into why church, why, why the church, why it exists at all. And hopefully you're getting some sense of what God's plan, purpose, hope, if you will, for the church is. Uh, but then also in the verb form, why church? Why do, we, why do we do it this way? And when I say this way, I'm now asking you to think through how God intends us to church, um, how God intends us to be doing this. Um, and, and by this, I don't just mean what happens on Sunday morning. I mean, how, how, do, how, do, we, how do we embody this identity and live it out uh, in a in a way that echoes, that reflects, that that manifests, even that exemplifies, that models, that bears witness to, that testifies to the genius that God had in mind when He spoke us into being in the first place. Um, and that's more than I have capacity for ever. Uh, certainly this morning, and so as we talked last time, this has got to be about revelation. It's got to be about the work of the Spirit uh, as, as we lean into it. Um, and, and, and especially as Paul writing to um, a local set of churches, probably the same seven churches that uh, um, Paul or John rather references in the book of Revelation um, and anchors this letter in the, collects it in Ephesus uh, where Timothy is is pastoring, um, he has some very clear ideas. So he writes to this church that is about as cosmopolitan and challenged as any church you can possibly imagine. I I found myself humbled um, in this last several uh, weeks working on this and other things that I've been doing because I I tend to think every once in a while, that our age, this 21st century age, is probably the most challenging age for the church in the history of the, of the world. And then I read Corinthians, and or I read this letter, to the, and I just realize, oh, we're babies when it comes to conflict. We're babies when it comes to division in the church. We're infants when it comes to the challenges and, and I, I, I take great comfort because this letter, as it lands, really calls a church that is way more divided than ours even might be and ours might not be at all. I don't know. But over the last two years, we've certainly had uh, our share of things about which we have chosen to divide ourselves. And I use that language very carefully. Those things have not divided us. We have chosen to divide ourselves as a result of those things. Um, and when Paul goes into this, he starts off with this crazy, remember, those of you who were formerly Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, already he's starting to call out the privilege that comes from those who feel they have received some blessing from God that elevates them above others who have knowledge of God, who have relationship with God. And notice what happened. You're called the uncircumcision by those who are 
calling themselves a circumcision. They, 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 in other words, this is a, a, a badge of honor, this being called, this being set out, this being uh, um, uh, made a holy people, etc. And that rather, and, 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 and Paul says, you, you have been labeled by those who have taken on themselves the role of labelers. Anybody been canceled? We didn't invent that. That's been going on in the church for a long time. And please notice, what goes around comes around. It's not them that did it to us, it's us that did it to them. You notice the language. We took the privilege of calling and stood on the platform of our specialness and relegated everybody else to the trash heap. This is what he's saying. You were called that by people who ought to have used their exceptionalism to your benefit and instead used it to your detriment. They used their position instead of something to serve you with, something to isolate you from them. This is, this is what, what he's saying. Remember, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizen, et cetera. And, and, and the Jew-Gentile divide here, this achingly familiar, this is, the church is just struggling to come to terms with this, given the Jewish uh, kind of roots of, of Christianity. And Paul, I think he would argue that he was a good Jew till the day they they killed him. He did not think Christianity was something different. Uh, he thought it was an expression. He would probably argue as a Pharisee, the purest expression of what God had in mind in the first place. And he's saying, our roots, our privilege has, has in, in, in some ways allowed us to view ourselves as better than, and nobody gets saved by those. Nobody is, is invited in by those they, they, they view as better than them. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Uh, you are excluded from citizenship in Israel. By who? Those who were the citizens of Israel. What were they supposed to be doing with the citizenship that they had received? By the way, it wasn't theirs either. It was given to them by God. What were they supposed to do with that citizenship? You may recall from the Old Testament, they were supposed to share it with the Gentiles. They were supposed to be a light in the world. They were supposed to be. They were supposed to be the, the people that God sent on mission to those who didn't know him to redeem and restore them. That's what they were supposed to be doing. But instead, they built their, their happy, holy huddle, and they, they encamped inside the blessings of God. We're blessed, we're blessed, we're blessed. Aren't we blessed? Just congratulate one another on your being blessed, shall we? Let's do that together, shall we? Yes, yes, yes. And all we've done is taken that and done it in Jesus' name. And Paul is saying, what the hell is wrong with you people? And I use that word very carefully because it is a manifestation of that source that has resulted in the exclusion. That's what he's saying. You've used this, and instead of this place of privilege as the platform on which you stand to serve and lift others, have used your platform to disdain and dismiss and to label and to set aside 
How dare you? Because we've found ways, haven't we, to turn this privilege of calling upside down. And instead of a platform from which to serve, it has become a platform to disdain. And now we, we get all, 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 all excited about people who come after us and after our position and after our privilege and, 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 and we call out persecution. We're not being persecuted, boys and girls. Not compared to these folks, right? We're, 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 we've got the wrong end of the stick here. We're the persecuted ones, Paul is saying. No, he's saying we're the ones who are doing the persecuting. When we isolate and when we, when we, when we uh, insulate ourselves from others, because we've regularly found ways to turn this whole position upside down and make it about privilege and preservation of power and, and, and everything, everything. I, I, I have joked over these last several, couple of years ago, we had this whole kerfuffle about white privilege. Remember that? I'm sorry, but your existence is a privilege. What are you doing with it? And I recognize the political ramifications of all of this. I'm just so sick and tired of talking about things that don't matter as a distraction from the one thing I'm supposed to be doing with my privilege. I'm an old white guy. Those are three power positions in our culture. God is not going to hold me account to how well I defended the assaults on age and whiteness and gender. He's going to hold me to account how I use those three power positions to serve those who are not having those positions. This is what he's, this is, this is what he's saying here. Because God's strategy is genius. And we've found a way to babbleize it. You know what I mean? We found a way to take this, what God intended for good, what God intended to redeem the world, what God intended to be the platform by which the world was going to be saved. We have found a way, even in the church, we have found a way to make it about us. In the same way that the, and, and, and securing our own position, defending the borders of our place has never been a Christian virtue. Not when you serve somebody who existed in the form of God, for crying out loud. You talk privilege? He existed in the form of God and did not consider that something he needed to hang on to. Not something he needed to defend, not something he needed to prove, not to anybody. Instead, he laid it aside. He laid it aside and became a human being, if you can imagine such a despicable creation. and was obedient to the point of death. And we're following him, by the way. I hope you've gotten yourself measured for your cross. This is the point, right? So, sorry, I'm, this has been bubbling all week, so I'll, I'll calm down here in a minute. Um, so, 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 so then he goes on, and as he presses into this, he says, but now, verse 13, but now... 
In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of those canceled folks, all of those folks who, who, who have been marginalized, all of the people at the edges, this is why Jesus regularly goes to them, right, in his, in his earthly mission. He finds, wherever you draw the line, he finds that line and gleefully steps over it and invites you to join him. Where, wherever it is you have drawn the line of exclusion, oh, yeah, but not them. Oh, yes, actually them. Now, here's what's annoying to me about Jesus. There are a number of things about Jesus that I still find annoying. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? So, and here's one of them. He didn't, he didn't condemn those that I condemned, right? But he didn't condemn those who condemned them. Something's wrong with that. And you know what's even worse? He didn't condemn me who condemned those who condemned them. <laughs> Jesus is a no condemnation savior, and he invites us to join him in that mission, in that work. Do you, do you see what he's doing here? It is through his blood. He himself is our peace. He brought these two groups into one. He destroyed the barrier before them, the dividing wall, it says, of hostility, setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. Remember when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River at the very beginning of his mission and ministry. He comes to John, remember this story, Matthew chapter 3, and says, uh, I want to be baptized by you. John pushes back. I have reason to be baptized by you. This is because John's baptism is a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of Messiah. And Jesus doesn't need that. He's the Messiah for whom they are preparing. John knows this. I have reason, he says, to be baptized by you. And Jesus reframes John's baptism and said, this isn't now a baptism of repentance anymore. It's a baptism of fulfillment of righteousness. What? Yeah. In that moment, Jesus fulfilled all of the righteousness that was available through adherence to Old Testament law. This is the ending, if you will, of the Old Testament work righteousness paradigm. And coming out of the water, he heard the voice of the Father approving him, not because of what he did, but because of who he was. Everything's, everything goes back to zero. We're back to square one, if you will. It, because the law has been set aside, having been fulfilled in Christ, it's not that the law was disregarded. Jesus said, no, I didn't come to set it aside in the sense of, 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 of saying, well, that was a bad idea. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to bring it to conclusion. Not one jot or tittle, he says, will be set aside. It will be completely fulfilled, but from the inside out, not from the outside in. The law is no longer a means of salvation. And so the privilege you have of knowing the law is now no longer privilege. You can no longer claim special knowledge because the special knowledge you have didn't actually help you very much. You treasured having it, failing to realize you weren't supposed to just have it, you were actually supposed to do it. Duh. By the way, Jesus says the same thing to us. Back end of Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. You guys are not blessed if you form study committees on this. 
You're blessed if you do the stuff. Don't build your house on the sand of your memorized scripture. Build your house on the solid rock of its actual obedience. Do you, do you see how th- this thing's taken sideways, isn't it? It's, and, and so he says, I've, I've, he brought to completion the righteousness, the means of salvation. So Gentile exclusion, because they don't have the law, is irrelevant. Paul's going to argue this at greater length in the, in the book, of, book of Romans. So everything goes back to zero. There's a new paradigm. So the death of Jesus and their being included in it, those who were once excluded, outsiders, are now given access once again. What was previously only available to those who kept the law. Because you're in Christ and Christ kept the law, you have thereby being in Christ kept the law. You fulfilled it. Now what? Well, his purpose was to make himself one new humanity. Out of these two. Now, Paul could have said, like he started to in the beginning. He didn't say that. But he could have, because that's true. This is not a brand new humanity. This is the old version that we screwed up. This is a restoration. This is a reconciliation. This is a restoring And so he will use this language of new humanity out of the two, thus enabling, thus thus making shalom, making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility. Oh, wait. So the cross wasn't just about me and Jesus, me and God, and the restoration of me? And my personal salvation, it's not my e-ticket ride to heaven. Oh, that was old. I get these illustrations that come in from the last century, you know, and, and I, sorry. Anybody know what I'm talking about with e-ticket? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Just talk to some of the youngins around you. Anyway, um, so it's not, it's your, this work of the cross is not just so that God can't think of a reason to keep you out of heaven. Right? He has restored that relationship individually, but he's also said, this work of the cross is about you all. Not just about this relationship, but about this relationship. This is why Jesus makes such a big deal about our forgiving of others. If you don't forgive others, he says, Sermon on the Mount, Lord's Prayer, forgive us our Sins as we have forgiven those who have. Holy cow, that denied. That's the small print I wish he hadn't included in that prayer. Anybody else? Because he's suggesting, is he not? Actually, suggesting would be too mild a word that if we don't step into the forgiving of others, it's clear that we have not ourselves yet been forgiven. Because once you get Your having been forgiven, you can't help but flowing with forgiveness to others, and particularly those who don't deserve it. Like you. (laughs) Do, do, Do you see what he's doing there? So he invites us here, not just this this reconciliation. Of, of, of both groups to God, but reconciliation of both groups to other. He put to death their hostility. 
Now, here's the problem. We have figured out CPR. So here's their hostility. Here's the hostility of the us's and them's. It, Jesus has killed it. And we've got stand clear. Boom! I think we can bring hostility back to life again. I think, I think with a little bit of CPR, a little bit of, you know, uh, I think we can do this. And, and failing that, we'll Frankenstein it. We'll make it a monster of hostility. We are good at hostility. We're practiced in it. It makes us feel safe when we're tiny and afraid. Because that's what anger is. That's what the hostility is. Why do, we, why do we them others? Because we're frightened of them. We don't think the love that God has for us is enough. So Paul says he's put to death this hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access to the Father through the Spirit. So the broader strategy of the cross here is spilled out, is spelled out rather. It's, it's not simply the death of Jesus enabling a restoration of my relationship with him. It's the death of Jesus and in him enabling the restoration of relationship with other people, the death of the barriers, the death of the hostility. It's almost impossible for us to imagine the, the, the outrageous nature that Paul is identifying here. All of the ways, we die to all of the ways by which we have previously been known. Our education, our tribal identities, our gender, our race, all of these things, all of these barriers are no longer relevant. Paul will later in another place say, there is no, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It's not that those distinctions aren't important. In fact, we need all of those different ways of expression. But let us be clear. If you start there, you're going to end up wrong. It's second button, first hole. I haven't used that one for a long time. I like that one. If you, get, if you, if you anchor your identity in anything other than the cross of Jesus, no matter how well you live out from the other end of that, you will end up wrong. It does not matter whether it's race, socioeconomic status, education, whatever it is, you're going to end up wrong. And, and here, here Paul is just saying all of these tribal identities, all of these points of hostility that root out of this small ego self, this small, tiny, insecure self, God wants to kill that to allow us to move into the full freedom by which we, you get this? We have access to the Father by the Spirit. What? Paul, do you, because we get the work of the Spirit, right? He's the one who brings us to life. This is an echo of Genesis 2. He breathes into this lively pile of dirt, and there we are. This, we are, we are a living soul, but, but, but Paul is not, finished with the work of the Spirit yet. It's not just God's breathing life into you. It is by the power of the Spirit that you have access into the very nature of God. He's going to later on pray that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Anybody get your head around that? If you do, please come and help me because i got to preach on this in a few weeks and I have not a clue 
what he's talking about. I haven't, I haven't even seen a map of how to get to that far-off country. But I want it so much. We're built for it. That's the hunger you feel. That's the longing you feel. That's the alienation you feel. That's the desire you feel. It goes sideways into all kinds of broken ways when we can't immediately satisfy it. And Paul has said to us here, he's given you his spirit, and it is by his spirit that you all, plural, together will have access to... You're not going to get that on your own. That's going to come as a work of the Spirit, that shalom working together, enabling the full flourishing of your individuality within the community formed by the Spirit, this brand new humanity by which we have access to the Father, by the one Spirit. Consequently, he says, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of his household built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Oh, you notice that? Cornerstone was the piece that was set in place first by which the rest of the building was constructed. It was the one that, that, that served to align the, the walls and create the foundational structures that enabled the building to flourish. So Christ is the cornerstone. Our alignment is not first with each other. Our alignment is first with him. It's like the silly illustration I use when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling. I said, if both of you love Jesus more than you love each other and are in pursuit of Christ with all of your heart, you will inevitably be drawn close together. That's what he's saying. If you align yourself around the cornerstone, who is Jesus, sooner or later you will find yourself in church with people you wouldn't be caught dead with. Because Jesus' friends are his friends, and now they need to become yours. It's really embarrassing. It really is. People that I wouldn't be caught dead with, I'm going to spend eternity with. That is sick. That is not right. You see how we do this? And you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it's like, okay, can I just let, like, get a different subdivision of heaven? You know, is there, like, soundproof walls? Because some of those folks, they just worship way too loud for me, and they're moving all over the place. They need a trampoline. I just need a rock. I'll be fine. It's not your home. It's his table, and you're all invited, but you don't get to set the place table, the cards. You don't get to do that. He invites us, aligning ourselves around the chief cornerstone, Jesus. In him, then, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In the Lord. You, too, then, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You want God to come, the kingdom to come in Long Beach as it is in heaven? Brothers and sisters, we got to start getting along. 
we've got to start setting aside all of the ways that we have divided ourselves from one another politically. I mean, we have figured out how to weaponize health systems. Good on us. Come on. Do, do, you, see where, do you see where I'm going here? If, if you're, so our first identity is not whatever political affiliation or whatever. Our, our first identity is I am a citizen. of. I am part of the new humanity. Everything flows out of that. By the way, we need people on opposite ends of the point who are anchored deeply in Jesus. We need them. We need them. And if I throw them out with the trash, I've completely cut off part of the body of Christ that I desperately need to keep me in balance. This is the invitation of the Spirit, I believe. The reason we church then and here's where it gets really sticky, is because once God wants us to be a case study for the world to look in on and say, look at those people. They love one another. In spite of their differences, they figured out how to be friends. They figured out how to be loved ones to each other. Some of them, their, their votes are going to cancel out well into eternity. Every election, they're just going to vote differently than the person they're sitting beside. Isn't that wonderful? Apparently, voting isn't the primary way by which the kingdom of God comes on earth. I'll be here all week. You know what I mean? And, 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 and here, here it says, this is, why, this is why Paul says, Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, boys and girls. Don't even bring the ways of the world into the church in Jesus' name. Don't you be doing that. Because the outcome of the ways of the world will not be the church. It will be the world in ecclesial garb, and God help us. There is nobody more righteous than the self-righteous, than the spiritually mature. And so he, goes, goes, he invites us into this wonderfully outrageous new reality in which we, by our life together, by our joining of our lives together, Echo the reality of the kingdom come here on earth as it is in the heavens. Now, this is going to take some work. So the rest of the book is going to be devoted to how in the world are we going to pull this off? So you might want to find another church to go to for the next few weeks. Because we're serious about this. We got to be, right? We got to get this right because nobody else is. I mean, by nobody, I don't mean just the garden. I mean, the church of Jesus Christ is the only people who knows what this new humanity is about. And we got to get it right. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.